Welcome to Talking About Midlife, where we talk about life living in a female body in our midlife. We talk about health, love, relationships, our inner world, aging, death, motherhood, and what it means to be a human at this time in the world. I am Kelly Sterling, and I hope you enjoyed listening to these stories that I'm sharing. Hi everyone, welcome. Thanks for listening today. Today I have a wonderful guest, the beautiful and amazingly talented Shelby Lee. And uh, Shelby is a teacher and a friend of mine and she is an expert around trauma. And I wanted to get her in today to talk about that because one thing that I've noticed working with women through this motherhood, midlife, menopause transitions is that these are times in our life when a lot of trauma, a lot of old trauma can come up for us. And, you know, with all the other stresses that we have in life, learning to become a mother, dealing with our bodies when we go through a midlife transition with all the hormonal changes, but also the identity shifts, it can feel like a lot in our life. And so I think it's really important to understand trauma and normalise it a little bit because... It, it is, you know, something that a lot of us have and just give you some resources and some information to think about in terms of if this is coming up for you, like what can you do about it and where can you go and, and that how maybe can you care for yourself as you're going through these transitions. So welcome, Shelby. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Mm, thank you. It's good to be here. And I feel really honored to be in this particular conversation. You're talking about some really important transitions and what I might call rite of passages. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there's so much that can come along with those big shifts in our lives. So nervous system regulation is really important in those moments, right? <laughs> Yeah, it really, really, really is. So can you tell us a little bit about you and, and what you do and how, what has been your pathway to where you are now in your life? Hmm. How many hours do we have? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So I live on the West Coast of the United States in Oregon in this beautiful very strange landscape that you and I were just talking about. It kind of looks like living on the moon in some places. Some places are mountainous with tall trees. Others are sagebrush and desert. So I'm a nature girl. I spend most of my time resourcing myself with being outside and moving my body, hanging out with my dog, Luna. And um, gosh, what got me to what I do today? Well, You called me a trauma expert, which is actually true. I have studied a lot about trauma, not only studied, but been in practice for over 15 years now, Mm -hmm. working with people in all different capacities. And I got interested in trauma because uh, it, it really wasn't like, it didn't feel like a choice. (laughs) I was working through my own stuff and uh just kind of ran into it you know Mm -hmm. it's like 
oh, this is what I've been up against for Mm. so long. I am so incredibly curious about this. Mm. And it uh, started my healing path really in uh, the meditation world. I was, I had found Buddhist meditation and was an avid practitioner in my early 20s trying to get rid of the anxiety and the depression that just plagued me and um I wanted to become a Buddhist meditation teacher but all of my teachers were like you are really young we're all psychotherapists why don't you go back to school for that and I was like how how could I possibly help anybody (laughs) no way um and I got into a graduate program for somatic psychotherapy and started learning about how we hold our histories and our bodies and how we carry that with us. And everything just started making sense to me about why I was reacting the way I was reacting and why it was so hard to stay present. And and then came in a trauma piece where I realized that I wasn't actually living in the present moment very often because I was Mm. spending so much time um, in this experience of fright or flight, um, really afraid a lot. That was the anxiety. And I hadn't realized that that was because I was responding to events in the past as though they were happening right now. And so that became my whole curiosity around trauma. (laughs) There came many mindfulness trainings many body-based trauma trainings and a lot of practice as a therapist, a coach and a meditation teacher. So do you mostly do coaching now or are you still doing therapy? And I know you do teaching as well, don't you? I do. Yeah. (laughs) I'm one of those people that just cannot not, cannot do one thing. I'm always (laughs) like, Oh, that's cool. Let me try that. Oh, that sounds fun. Let me do that. And so I call myself a coach these days. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in private practice as a psychotherapist for a while and then became a digital nomad years ago Mm. and really loved working with people all over the world. Mm. And I already had a coaching certificate. That was my original training. Mm. And uh, you can't actually work with clients outside of your state if you're a therapist in uh, the United States. Yeah. And I love hearing different accents all day. I love getting to hear different worldviews and experiences. And so I just jumped full on into my coaching hat. Although it really, I was laughing with some friends of mine who are somatic, uh, trauma therapists last night. And I was like, I don't care what you call it. I'm doing the same thing, whether I'm business coaching, whether I'm doing therapy, whether I'm coaching, and that's me being here and present in my body, meeting the moment and my client exactly where they're at. So you could really call it whatever you want. Yeah, I agree with you. hundred, two thousand percent, actually. Same. <laughs> Regardless yeah. of why they came to you. So when it comes to trauma, why does it come up in later times in our life? What What is the reason that that happens? Because a lot of women experience it post-birth and then definitely in this midlife transition there's a orientation of the body towards um, healing definitely Hmm. you know and it comes out in because we're all unique 
you know, we all have our own journey and our own soul path and our own experiences and and values and all those things. But it seems to come up for a lot of people when they hit that sort of 40 to 50 midlife transition. So can you talk a little bit about that and just help us understand why that happens? Why does the body do that? Yeah. Well, one word that really stuck out to me that you just said was healing. Healing is happening in these transitions. And Mm -hmm. uh, for many of us, you know, when we are oriented towards healing, everything shows up (laughs) that wants to have our attention, that Mm -hmm. wants to experience healing. And so that can be one really key reason why all of a sudden everything else shows up. It's like, oh, look, this is why you don't feel so great. Or this is what's in the way of you feeling better or having what you want. It's like, here, listen to me, find me, tend to me. Mm -hmm. Another reason can be, you know, as we age, uh, we tend, a lot of us tend to kind of shove things down (laughs) and like stack things up over and over and over on top of each other. And there becomes a point but we just can't not look at it anymore. Yes. Yeah. When I say that, it feels like this shaking in my system of like, yeah, it, it's a pressure. I can't, I can't not allow myself to be in my wholeness anymore. I can't uh, ignore or numb because these things are really, they start pressure cooking. They, mm-hmm. You can only shove so much down or ignore so much or avoid until it's like, nope. Okay. If you're not going to listen, I'm really going to make it bigger. So that might be a bigger pain in the body. Emotions become more overwhelming Mm -hmm. Uh, stories or memories might start flooding us uh, or all three. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm curious what you think. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think that you know, the more I understand about hormones, the more I read about, like, they, they're so incredible. And for women, they facilitate our rites of passage, whereas for men, they, you know, their hormone changes just kind of go, go along, okay? And I think sometimes those big shifts can enable all the things that you talk about. And, you know, obviously our hormones impact on our emotional responses as well. I think that, like you say, particularly with the repression of the emotions, because we have a chance in our menstrual cycle every month. So hormonally, you know, estrogen goes down after we ovulate. And estrogen is the hormone of soothing and accommodation. So a lot of women, you know, we just do that. It's okay. I'm not going to make a big deal. I don't want to cause a fuss. You know, that's that sort of cultural conditioning. But then every month, I call it the little feminine leadership course we have every month where our shadow comes out and our body mind says to us, hmm, actually, would you like to think about this? Because, because it's like the veil goes down when, when the estrogen decreases and the body's like, oh, I'm actually not happy about that. Like, you know, they're feeling that full body yes and full body no. And so when we're not perhaps connected to that and with his soothing, we're like, oh, it's fine. So I think that's where a lot of it comes up. Now, when you go through your midlife transition, because once you hit 40, the estrogen starts to sort of go right down. So the drop is very significant in that 40 to 50 year group. So I think a lot of that that period is also, there's something about those hormonal changes that seems to shift that. 
And I wonder why that's where a lot of women, so to your point, they get the pressure cooker on the health. So the body starts to go, oh, no, can't do this anymore. Hormonally, a lot of us have big anger swings, you know, and it just comes out of nowhere. We think because, again, it's just been pressed down, pressed down, pressed down. So I, I feel like this midlife transition is a gift to us in many ways because it's how do you set yourself up to live well in the second half of your life? And so, mm-hmm. you know, reviewing your health, you know, like what is your diet? Like just for example, I did a masterclass last week and we, it was just a midlife masterclass. And we, we talked about what is the deeper meaning of women's rites of passages and how are they different to men? So the hero's journey versus the heroine's journey and how does that show up and how, you know. And we were talking about, of course, we get onto hot flushes and night sweats at the very end. And I was like, well, look, it's just hormonal imbalance. And there's different ways that you can deal with it. But you have to look at your sleep. Your diet is massively impacting on your hormones, your stress levels and how you choose to manage your stress. Do you meditate? Do you do yoga? Whatever. And your exercise, because actually sometimes if you're doing a lot of HIIT and like really high activity stuff, that's just going to release more cortisol into your body. So when you have more cortisol going in and the estrogen going down, that's just going to leave you in a sort of hyper aroused state which is not great, okay? Stress is not necessarily your friend. So you can get into this really bad spin. And um, so we talked about it from a health perspective. And I was like, you know, I've, I've totally been able to control mine through diet because I know that sugar and caffeine are the two things that make me have night sweats. So when I take those out of my diet and I eat a lot of plant-based food, I sleep well. But, you know, you can get into a bit of a spin. And then I said, you know, from a metaphorical perspective, there's lots of, women's stories for want of a better word that say your night sweats and hot flashes are your body's way of burning off parts of you that you don't need anymore and parts of you that you know growing new parts of you as you become the wise woman so there's lots of different ways that you can look at it but I feel like there's so much wisdom in our body that it just like you say it just kind of orients towards healing and so at this time with all this change going on it's like time to sort it out I love the perspective of you know just all you know the symptoms of oh yeah night sweats sweats could mean this and it's such a great reframe instead of all the other things people are afraid of or talk about and yeah I just for me I just want to say you know disclaimer 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 yeah. I'm not a doctor I cannot talk, talk to you about nutrition <laughs> Um, that is way out of my scope of practice. And it sounds like we're talking about menstruating female identified folks. So I just want to yes, be inclusive in my language because there's so many women that don't go through night sweats and menopause and things like that. Well, there's also women who are menstruating who don't have physical symptoms. Right. Right. So it's more yeah. than just a physical thing that's going on. Well, that's what I was going to say next is, you know, I just have to believe that uh, all genders go through rites of passages, regardless of their hormonal chemistry. But if that's what we're talking about here, I can get down with that. I just want to be really clear (laughs) with what specifically we're talking about. It's the hormonal changes or 
um, you know, what happens for folks at that time of age or, you know what I mean? Totally, you know, and I think that's one of the confusing things too is, you know, when, if we're talking about menopause in particular, like, man, that can happen anytime from late thirties to 60, do you know? Cause we're all mm-hmm. different and our bodies are all different. Mm-hmm. And regardless of your gender, you know, like you say, if you have a womb, if you have female hormones, it will happen at some point, but how it shows up. Because, and, and I think that's one of the really challenging things for a lot of women is because it's not talked about a lot and there's not yeah. a lot of information, it's very confusing. That was one piece that I thought could be such an impactful layer because our even our thoughts shape us, right? Yeah, totally. And there's so much messaging out there that creates how we think about ourselves, that creates our beliefs and how we think about these rites of passages and transitions and I'm thinking about so many cultural messages that can be just traumatic and themselves going just through around menopause. aging. You yeah. know like aging like if you impl- all the implicit messaging that we get around aging and um, that once you hit a particular age that you become invisible and you have no value yes yeah so even though your logical brain knows that that's probably rubbish of course you internalize that Mm-hmm. you know we and that's the implicit messaging that we get so then how do how do I feel about this thing that might happen to me which I'm just hearing terrible stories about that actually could be like an incredibly power empowering transition in my life yes and that's why you're here <laughs> that's I'm why. here to change the story you know <laughs> that's and I why think, you're telling people they can yeah 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 totally totally so we talked a little bit, you talked a little bit then about people's health in that answer before. So how can trauma impact on our health and well-being in that way? Yeah. So you talked a little bit about how it shows up as pain sometimes. Are you able to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And, you know, should we define trauma? Would that I be helpful I think that's good. Here? Yeah, let's do that. I should have okay. started, that should have been my first question. So there's so many definitions of trauma, right? You would respond differently than I would. And I'm grateful for that these days because we're talking about trauma in so many different ways than we used to. We used to think it was the event Mm. and we'd often think of trauma as war, someone who's been to war, somebody that's been sexually assaulted or gotten in a car accident. And these days we know that it's the response that happens in our nervous systems, our bodies, Mm. our hearts, and our minds to the events that happen. So Mm. two people can experience the same exact event. One can walk away resilient, unmoved, unchanged. The other can be wobbly and terrified for the rest of Mm. their lives. And a lot of that depends on um, what happened before the event or events, traumatic events. Um, because when we have resilience, we usually have a support system or community or all sorts of ways that uh, we're able to move through challenges instead of others who are really highly impacted don't necessarily have that level of resilience. But trauma isn't the event. It's 
how we experience it, how we carry it, which means it might look like a car crash. It might look like a criticism from mom. It might look like uh, reading a bunch of magazines with female identified people in it and comparing ourselves and bullying ourselves or being bullied by others. It could look like going to war. It's what we do with it on the inside and how we carry it in ourselves and with ourselves uh, that creates that traumatic impact. And we call that having stress responses. So then whatever we carry creates this level of reactivity instead of responding to life's events. So then we're in these states of fight or flight or freeze, trying to guard ourselves against those stressful events again and again and again. That's what it can kind of look like to carry trauma. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you talk about it as stresses. Because I think sometimes the word trauma in itself is a bit scary to people. Yeah, and, absolutely. Know, yeah. And we all are subject to those stresses of life all the time, aren't we? Yeah. And I just have to imagine when we're going through a transition like menopause, which I w- will be going through and I'm probably just starting to go through now, you know, that it could kick up any number of things we might not have realized uh, created that stress yeah. response or trauma if we had anything to, having to do with our womb or our sexual organs or um, having children or not having children miscarriages yes. yeah it's like all right there being processed going through this transition right yeah absolutely yeah how can so a lot of a lot of women in these times seem to spend a lot of time at doctor's offices for obvious reasons. So some people have great experiences of that and have a practitioner or practitioners that they work with where it seems more collaborative. And some people have very negative experiences of that. So in light of, you know, us carrying our stresses, how can we work more effectively with health practitioners where we can maybe talk about those impacts but also have a more collaborative rather than expert to patient perspective type of conversation? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, this is my favourite topic of conversation right now because <laughs> I'm building a course for the healthcare practitioners around mm. it And, um, you know, you had asked that question earlier about health, you know, how does health come up here? And uh, when trauma happens, we know, uh, especially early trauma, that it really impacts our long-term health. So many people with chronic conditions and complex conditions that are score very high on what we call the adverse childhood experiences test, Mm -hmm. we call it ACEs. Mm-hmm. They've experienced abuse. They've experienced addiction, uh, either from their parents or themselves early in life, from the people around them. They weren't experiencing dependable, consistent, attuned, emotionally attuned care. Yeah. When they didn't get those things later in life, all of a sudden, they're the ones going to the doctors over and over and over again, trying to get things resolved and they just feel like a guinea pig (laughs) 
And what we know is that the nervous system goes into that survival experience and it, it creates this load on the system. We call it an allostatic load. Yeah. And it starts wearing away at systems, our organs, like our liver, our kidneys, our adrenals. And that wreaks havoc on how our immune systems function. And you can imagine that can create inflammation in the body that can create all sorts of things. And Mm. so when people are finding themselves seeing all sorts of practitioners, it's my biggest wish in the world that they walk in and their practitioners welcoming them with open arms, ready to collaborate with them. Just like you said, like let them be the expert on their body because they've already been through this many years of life and they've probably done quite a few things. They know some things. And the reality is I hear more stories than not about people leaving feeling disappointed or disrespected or touched in ways they didn't want to be touched or talked to in ways they didn't want to be touched. Mm. And so your question is how can people really get that trauma-informed care, right? Yeah, but also how can they advocate for themselves? I mean, I just to give you share a personal experience because I've had a lot of hospital doctor time is I get sick of talking to them about, like having to educate them about my stresses in my body and how I like to retouch. And it's like, like, you know, they kind of look at you and I just think, I don't, I mean, I don't care. I just tell them, but um, it's, it's challenging. And, and I think some medical professionals, you know, I've seen people roll their eyes. I've had people roll their eyes at me and I've, gone straight back on them about that but I think it's very disempowering because you know I think you know we're in our bodies we live it every day we know what we're feeling and so how how can we advocate better how can we feel like I I feel like in these rites of passage when we're feeling very wobbly you know often our confidence is not where it can be shining it's so vulnerable it is so vulnerable. vulnerable There's a power dynamic. We walk in. Yeah. We don't want to be perceived as difficult because we want to receive really good care. We don't want to challenge them so that they don't want to take care of us. Right. This isn't Mm. everyone. These days I do. These days I'll just walk out and not pay. (laughs) But (laughs) there were so many years where I was so shaky inside because I felt so vulnerable and I wanted this person to help heal me. And I heard they were the best and I would just take so much crap from them. Mm. And the things that I do these days to advocate for myself, uh, especially brand new appointments, simple things like as soon as the appointment starts, I say, can I record this session? And I take out my phone. And often when we're recording sessions, they will pay better attention or take a little (laughs) bit more care. I let them know I'm doing it because my brain is foggy. That's part of my symptoms. Right. And I want to make sure that that. I can remember. Yeah. No, I get that. Also, yeah. I was gonna say, I take my husband for that reason, because sometimes I can't remember. Yeah. I'm also recording because I want them to know I'm watching them. <laughs> you know, like I, I really want them to know, like I, my healthcare is important to me. I need to be accountable. You need to be accountable too. You know, yeah. I'm somebody that's going to walk in here and be empowered to say something like that. 
And that's not easy for me. Sometimes I still can't say it. I get so nervous, but more often I am just like, okay, this is my number one thing. I know that I do to just model. I'm being an advocate for myself. The other thing I do before I even step foot in the front door is I call and I ask the doctor or the receptionist if the, if the clinic is trauma informed. Okay. And if they respond and they're like, I have no idea what you mean. Mm. I say, thank you so much. Have a great day. (laughs) If they respond and say, absolutely. We treat folks with trauma here all the time. Um, And then ideally they respond and say, what might that look like and feel like to you? That's gold. (laughs) Sign me up. Um, Often what I get most is, yeah, we treat people here with trauma, which is totally different than being trauma informed. So I do some educating around that and I see how they respond to me saying, well, does that mean you ask consent before you touch my body? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that everything's confidential? You know, I just ask them a bunch of questions and if they're like, yes, thank you for telling me. Yes, of course. Yes. I will let the doctor know. Um, then I'm like, okay, I can work with them. Uh, if people are open to conversations mm. in the session or in the, what do you call that? Is that a session? <laughs> You're in there. I guess, a, I guess it's a appointment. Appointment. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do I advocate for myself? I will ask to bring someone sometimes if I'm particularly nervous. Yeah. I interrupt them a lot and I just either ask them to slow down or repeat themselves and just to notice their reaction. (laughs) And I might actually need it. Yeah. Sometimes I'll give them feedback like, Hey, when you're typing and you're asking me these really intense questions about my history and you don't look at me and empathically reply at these horrific things I'm naming it's really hard for me to want to work with you I see what their response is Mm. if it's empathic empathetic yeah I'll stay in the conversation if it's not I leave Mm. but I'm just making this all up as I go because we have not been taught how to do this yeah well this is the big it's a big thing yeah how about you yeah, so I, um, well, I have a brilliant GP. So she, I've worked with her for about six years and she's a women's health. That's her passion. She's semi-retired now and um, she she's great at listening to me. So um, like even in these COVID times, you know, we go in with a mask and she's like, take your mask off because I want to see your face, but I'll leave mine on. And we often just sit and talk and then we get to the reason why I'm there. But generally... Yeah, like I'm, I, you know, when I was going through chemo, it was hard because my whole body would just be like (sighs) all the time when I'd go into the hospital. So my blood pressure would be crazy because my trauma that I had was related to earlier emergency room experience years before. So I go into a hospital and my body just goes, oh, my God. Um, but also I, during that period, was doing a lot of SE work. And so that really helped me resource very well. Mm. But having to just talk to them and then I was having different responses to the drugs. And so my oncologist was fabulous and we talked about different dosages and changing it and different needle and slowing down the pace of the infusion and all that sort of stuff. So I felt she's great, very heard by her. And then just with the nurses, just having to explain to them all the time. So once I'd been in there 
a couple of times, they were like, okay, this is what happens, you know, and so if I had a new nurse, this is what happens with Kelly, it's totally okay, you know, and then we have to use this needle and then we've slowed her down. So they were really beautiful, actually, you know, going. Um, and I only probably had one time where it sort of went a bit pear-shaped and that was because, because my husband would come with me to the hospital because after you have those treatments, your brain is like the worst brain frog you've ever had in your life. And um, I sometimes could barely walk out of the room. And so he was at, they wouldn't let him come in because of the COVID getting worse at the time. And I was really distressed by that. And so normally I was like, what needle are you using? How are you doing this? What's the dosage? Like I was asking them all the time and they would, be, they would get a little bit, they're like, wow, like you're kind of bossy. And I'm like, well, I have to be. Do you know, I have to make sure that it's all okay. And they yeah. put the old needle in. And so, like, at the end of the session, I was quite unwell because it was too fast for my nervous mm. system. And my nervous system just was like, whoa. So, yeah, so I got really good at being really bossy through that. That's the best part. That's the healing to me, especially when we have people that are willing to listen and collaborate and learn, is they're actually helping us know that, it's safe to speak what we want. It's safe to speak what we need. Care will be available. And it's this very cool, empowering, healing, reparative experience. Yeah. And I just love that that possibility is there. And I love hearing you name the things that did feel more trauma informed. And I also like, I want everyone to feel empowered, to feel bossy. And I know that, especially when we have medical trauma, it can be a long road to getting there. And so we have to find more and more ways to educate the practitioners. Yeah. And just, um, yeah, like I remember going in for surgery and the consultant, well, she was a fellow with my surgeon and um, she didn't say, okay, I'm going to put the gas on you now. She just went, Boom, and I was like, <laughs> you know, freaking out. And I said to my surgeon afterwards when I was in hospital, I'm like, I just need to give you this feedback. This is what happened. I'm so that. glad you could give feedback. I gosh, the same thing or something really similar happened with the anesthesiologist when I had my sinus surgery last year. I went in, I asked everyone from the receptionist to the tech, to the anesthesiologist, the doctor, have you been trauma-informed? What does that mean? And everyone mm. said no. <laughs> and I handed this post-it note to the nurse who was taking care of me when I was coming off of the anesthesia. I gave it to her before. Mm. Said, tell me these three things when I come out. You're safe now. It's over now. I'm right here with you. Yeah, yeah. And um, I had her post it like that right on me. Yeah. And uh, when I came out, she refused to say it. She felt too embarrassed. Really? And the oh. anesthesiologist came over and laughed at me because I had those written there. Mm. And so I, uh, it, under anesthesia coming out, I started yelling it like out loud just because I was trying to prove a point. Like I was with it enough to have to take care of myself yet again and got them all laughing, which was helpful in a way. But it was so shocking to me that it was funny to them that I needed to be told those things mm, instead sorry. of genuinely being like empathetic. I had never been under anesthesia before. I was so oh. scared. Yeah. It's really full on. I mean, and that's, that's part of my sort of trauma experience is not coming well out of it or getting stuck in the phrase of it. 
yeah, and after the, my big surgery last year, actually beautiful nurse, male, goes, it's okay, everything went really well, you're in good shape, you're just waking up now, this is where you are, you're in this room, and I went, okay, great, I'm feeling really good from the anaesthetic, he goes, just relax, I'll get you some drinks, and beautiful, he was really sweet. That's good. Yeah, this is fun. We should just do a whole episode where I talk about (laughs) really bad experiences and you can counter them with good ones. So yeah, I feel you know I and and yeah, I think it's really important for women because I think you know particularly around anything to do with any gynecological issues, it's so vulnerable for so many women, you know, and they just want people to understand them. And when there's so little information, like I think. A lot of women that I work with post becoming a mother. So I generally work around the becoming a mother bit. There's a lot of information and support around the baby and looking after the baby, but there's not a lot for them around the becoming a mother bit. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how challenging it is and the identity shift and the relationship impact and all of that sort of stuff. So even, you know, to be able to normalize that, or just say, yeah, actually, people do experience the big emotions and people are surprised sometimes when they think their life is like a, a Huggies ad. Huggies is a nappy brand here. Um, and then they feel really freaking angry or pissed off at their partner because they're so tired. Like, mm-hmm. you're not alone. Like, it's okay. And so, yeah, to be able to, I guess, share some of these stories and help people with a what, you know, pretty challenging conversations it's so and I think, important you know we're nervous when we go in there and we forget it's normal though isn't it to be like that I think normalizing is one of the best things you can do in the face of trauma or, or stress is mm. which means don't look at Instagram <laughs> 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 really surround ourselves with people that go yep this is it this is what it's supposed to look right now look like right now or yeah whatever you're feeling that makes sense of course it does yeah that's such a soothing phrase it makes so much sense that you feel that way and many of us don't get to hear that that often yeah and I think female identified people tend to like sharing stories with each other like that's how we like to communicate and so we share our good stories and our bad stories. And, and I think from a medical perspective, you know, to, to, to recognise that and go, oh, you know, actually they're learning off their friends. So how can I share some information with them that's empowering? It's not just going to impact this woman, but all the other female identified people that are in their life because I know that's how they are with each other. Mm-hmm. So thinking about yeah. the broader sort of impact of what they're doing I, I think about indigenous cultures when you say that and mm. many stories I've heard and this I, it's not my lineage or where I come from um, but I have heard there are many indigenous traditions that women would share stories about these rites of passages and in those stories, things would be normalized. And I so crave a community like that and yeah. wish more people got to have experiences like that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things we were sort of, I was talking about with a friend the other day and we've got teenagers, both of us, is that 
you know, like when we go through our adolescence, we have caregivers or parents who can kind of hold space for us, okay? And when we go through becoming a mother, we often have older or like the aunties, the friends, the grandmothers around us. But often in the midlife time, it's we're kind of exposed because often we're caring for older parents or older wiser women in our life. And so we have to look after each other and share mm-hmm. with each other because we just don't, you know, that's our community support because we can't rely on them because they need us to look after them. Yeah, it's almost like the tables turn. Yeah. And yeah. If, you're, if you're going through this transition and you don't have that, plus you've got teenagers or young children in, you know, so you, you're doing that, you're maybe trying to work, run a business, you're, God knows what else is going on. You know, it can be a really lonely time, I think, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in so many ways. I had a teacher, um, Mary Grace Orr, who gave this beautiful wisdom talk at a meditation retreat, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, and her hair had gone silver and so she walked into the meditation hall to sit at the front one day and her hair was bright purple (laughs) Mm -hmm. and she gave this gorgeous heartfelt talk about the reality of at this time in life it's not just messages that we have been told it's really real that you don't get noticed anymore right and so she was just describing her experience to all of us of all ages and it really stuck with me, you know, how in, in American culture here where I live, uh, the elders are no longer elders. They're, mm. we call them olders now mm. because they haven't been given a role to step into maybe that crone wise yep. experience. And then right before that, which is kind of the stage you're talking about. Yeah. It's that turning point of what am I going to be stepping into? Who am I choosing to be? Correct. Where, what am I blooming into? And I think some people get lost and just deaden and others kind of brighten. Yeah. And so much of that can depend on who we're surrounded by. Yeah. And who, who's reflecting to us our goodness and our importance and that we matter. To me, community and relationship really is huge component of trauma healing and preventing trauma from happening yeah and transitions right yeah like they're kind of the community is critical isn't it yeah interesting so can we talk a little bit about embodiment work and maybe even you talk about what embodiment is to you and how that can be a source of healing when it comes to stress and trauma but also just uh, resourcing us in our life. Mm-hmm. Yes. So embodiment or somatic, that's, I was trained in somatic psychotherapy or somatic trauma healing is really about um, coming into connection with the felt sense of our experience. And that can be anywhere from, I can feel my little toe to I'm really in connection with my soft belly and my expansive heart you know you can feel so much or so little and so I see embodiment as a spectrum Mm -hmm. and uh, the more we can connect with our our felt sense uh, the more we can feel safe enough to connect with our felt sense we're moving towards 
this beautiful possibility of really living in our wholeness, our innate wholeness and fullness. There's such good reasons why we don't do that. Uh, Often when trauma happens, the last thing we want to do is be here in our bodies to feel it. Mm. Our survival systems are brilliant in that they actually help us get away if something's too intense to be able Mm. to feel. So Mm. a lot of people go through life feeling numb or dissociated, kind of checked out from the body or spending Mm. a lot of time letting the wheels turn in the mind. Mm. And so first, before we move towards embodiment, we have to learn it's safe enough to be right here in the present moment in my body and I'm not actually living that body memory where I want to shoot out because it's scary you Mm. know so it's a relationship that we come into slowly Mm -hmm. over time and it's what I love about coming into my body over time is that I have more access to more of my authenticity my own deep wisdom, like if I'm really listening into my gut or my belly or my heart, I have so much more information about myself, others, the world, than if I was just here in this tiny part of my body, which is my brain, it's in my body, but Mm. I have so much more access to more parts of me that can give and receive information. I can listen uh, with so many parts of myself and that feels more less constricted and more relaxed and soft than uh, what would be living in a stress response, which tends to be more tense and not so connected. Yeah. Actually, um, Steve Bidoff, who's an Australian psychologist, has written a book. I think he said it's like his retirement gift to us, but um, he called it Fully Human beautiful book it just came out about three months ago and he talks exactly about what you're talking about about living he, he calls it the imagine you've got four flaws in your body like there's you know the nervous system the limbic brain the cortex and then he talks about spirituality being the top floor but um when we live in we live so much in our cortex but when we live in all of it like we're living in our fully human experience that's kind of the sort of arc of the story and yeah it's a really sweet and beautiful gift I think to all of us the way he's written it but he's described it exactly the same way as you have Mm, I love that I want to see the book when it comes out that sounds beautiful you should get it it is it's really lovely Mm. so what are the different ways that we can learn to care for ourselves with more tenderness and care one of the things that I sort of reflect on in not necessarily like my family but just my culture of growing up like the environment that I grew up in is that we weren't there wasn't a lot of teaching about how to look after ourselves in terms of being tender with ourselves and and going slowly and and just you know it's okay to rest every now and then so just from your point of view what are some strategies that people can use to start doing that so you know you talked about the embodiment being like there's that relationship and it's a spectrum and going slowly and I kind of feel like learning the skill of tenderness and care and taking care of yourself is is similar in that you know we have to practice it practice it 
What, oh, what, yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me a little bit about what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's that's it's such a life journey. Mm. It's, it was not something that was modeled to me in any way, shape, or form until I received really loving therapists, you know? And so one way that I like to think about or feel into uh, creating that experience of tenderness and care is actually through the experience of co-regulation. And again, it's just like you said, it takes practice, it's over time. Uh, Because when we are developing in a healthy environment, uh, ideally you get this beautiful experience of co-regulation from your primary caregiver, whether it's mm. a mama or a father or aunt or community member, but you're looking into the baby's eyes. They're looking into yours. Mm. The little one is learning their emotions through the experience of that primary caregiver. Mm. They're receiving care. They're receiving empathy and then they internalize it and then they can do that for themselves. Mm. People that didn't get that or enough of it um, end up needing more <laughs> and co-regulation is not, doesn't come so easily. Yeah. So that can be a role of a coach or a therapist, you know, where you really intend to show up and connect and be able to depend on them and receive their care. Could be in your, you know, communities, people in their churches, you know, where there is this aim to be able to show up fully yourself and lean into that care and be present together. Um, And that's in some ways the best way, but also the hardest way. Mm. (laughs) For me, I I learned so much how to be self-reliant that letting in Mm. the care and support of others felt way too overwhelming. And so I love just practicing placing a hand on my heart, you know, mm. <laughs> which can sometimes feel impossible for some of us. And it's like, mm. can I just take 10 breaths with a hand on my heart or even a hand on my belly, feeling the breaths being right here with it, noticing whatever comes up. I hate mm. this. I don't want to do this. This is mm. dumb. This is amazing. This is beautiful. You know, whatever it is, can I commit to just being here and seeing what happens for 10 breaths and noticing at least one thing that feels good or okay about it. You could do that practice every day for 10 years and I bet life would change. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Do you have any practices you really like? I do this heart breathing thing when I'm spinning at 3 a.m. You know, I like wake up and have all these ideas and then can't. So I like breathe in and out of my heart. Like I imagine my, my chest has lips on it and I put all my attention on my heart. And I just like feeling the, the energy of my heart. And I just breathe in and out. And it just brings me into my body really quickly. And um, I often just go back to sleep quite quickly. So that's something I do to regulate myself, like down-regulate myself, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but also for me, like nature's a big, so just using my senses, which is what I did a lot through my chemo treatment because I didn't like have a lot of resources. So that was a big one for me is like what, can I do today to bring some pleasure into my life? So whether it was listening to some music, going for a walk and looking at all the gardens, like and the flowers coming up and just noticing them, what am I going to eat that's really nutritious and great? So just, yeah, I use my senses a lot and I still do that because I find nature like you is a very good 
resource for me. Seems to just chill me right out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. The tenderness piece can come so easily with, you know, just doing simple things like connecting with something beautiful, right? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a forced thing. And it can so often, many of us with trauma, we can get consumed with what's going wrong, what's bad, what do I not like, yeah. what's unpleasant. And so when we can let in a little bit of goodness, whether it's a beautiful color in our space, smell, even that can just bring that softness. Yeah. Even just, um, you know, when I put my moisturizer on my arms and legs in the morning, just, just doing it with a bit of intention, just, you know, oh, noticing the touch on my skin. And because sometimes you can just do it in such a hurry and just, you know, can be a little bit perfunctory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, just taking the time to notice that. Or if I, I wear scarves a lot because I like keeping warm around my neck and just, you know, the feeling of the scarf on my face just feels like a really nice thing. It's very soothing, I find. Mm. So, yeah, the little, the little moments. When, when we're going through our healing, I've noticed with a lot of practitioners in the SE world or uh, some sensory motor psychotherapists that I'm friends with, you know, we, they talk a lot about slow. Slow is more, slow is better. Can you talk a little bit about that and why, why slow more when it comes to healing our stresses mm. and traumas? Yeah. I'm one of those sensory motor people and really got that message loud and clear in that training and loved it so much. I remember we just spent an entire morning rolling a ball under our feet, you know, mm. of our year long training. And I was like, this is annoying. This is stupid. You know, let's get on with it. Let's learn some things. But the impact of taking that much time to bring the attention down into my feet, out of my mind where I usually lived it had an impact like throughout the week, I noticed. Mm. It was like, oh, I can feel the ground under my feet. I can feel my breath more. My hips are swinging differently as I walk. And mm. when we move slowly, we can notice so much more. <laughs> when we move quickly, we tend to jump over things that need our attention that we miss. Uh -huh. And there's so many healing modalities that call themselves trauma informed. And I've even participated in most of them, either trying to heal myself or assisting others. And they can feel really healing, like cathartic, intense breathwork practices yes. where you're screaming and yelling and beating on things. And I've loved those. They feel so fun and good. However, a lot of people, a few things can happen when we're moving that quickly. Uh, we either are just moving energy and it feels good, yeah. um, but we're not actually creating long-term sustainable change because we're not attuning to the parts that actually need us to slow down and pause and feel. We're just kind of bulldozing over them. Yes. Others who are addicted to intensity, which many yes. of us who experience trauma are, Yes. we're used to going fast and hard and doing it well and like I can handle it. It reinforces that neural pathway. And so it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, 
this is just going to mirror exactly what I've always been doing. So yes. it's really just makes it not... stronger, right? The neural pathway, you're just actually building it, building a stronger pathway. Right. But when we slow down, it can be pretty darn uncomfortable. It's mm. like, what's there in that discomfort? And that's what I'm curious about. So I actually don't slow people down that fast when they start working with me because slowing down too quickly can have the same impact where people get really overwhelmed really fast. It's really scary. It feels very intimate. Yeah. (laughs) People are used to going fast. And so we just start slowing down. We're like, what comes up now? And there is so much that comes up. And so when we have time to tend to that, make space for it and go, okay, what is this part of you want? What did it not get that it needs now? We get to slowly support those parts and then also reprogram the parts of us that think we need to go fast to be successful, to be noticed, to heal, to be thriving, whatever the story is. We go, no, going slow, rest space, breath, connection here, this all can be safe too. And not only safe, but nourishing and bring you all the things that you've been wanting, but haven't been able to slow down enough to actually experience. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That resonated a lot with me, particularly to like some people in my life who are go, go, go really fast. And when they're dealing with their past stresses they'll be like nothing's happening nothing's happening like when I'm when they're going slow like I'm like yeah it is it's happening underneath somewhere yeah but yeah my own experience was just like when I was so slow it was incredible the depth and what would come up yes and the the goal is that you get ultimately all of the paces like I can go slow and I can go fast. I can take time walking slowly by the river and I can drive 90 miles an hour to get there. I'm here. I'm present. I'm saying yes to it on purpose. I'm choosing it on purpose instead of just getting hijacked by my programmed impulses. Like I'm going fast to get away from feeling this or I'm Mm -hmm. going really slow because having a lot of energy is scary so Mm. we bring back that whole spectrum as we heal beautiful oh I love that and then I imagine you know in terms of that tenderness and care when we're able to access that spectrum it just gives us more strategies to show ourselves tenderness and care right yeah and we get to be there for it yeah (laughs) it's so good oh thank you so much for today if people want to find you, maybe we talk a little bit of just quickly about your courses that you're offering, because I know the medical one is coming up soon that you're launching. So you've got Creating Safer Spaces, mm-hmm. which is, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So Creating Safer Space is a course for facilitators, therapists, and coaches mm-hmm. who uh, want to learn how to support folks who come into their spaces who have trauma, which side note is pretty much everyone, especially Mm. these days. (laughs) Pretty much. And I think what I hear most often when people finish that course is they never realized how simple and easy it could be and that how confident they could actually deliver their gifts now because they weren't tiptoeing around people anymore. Yeah. So that's creating safer space and then creating safer healthcare 
will have the same outcome, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's for medical providers, medical teams, anyone from the receptionist to the biller, to the physician, to the mm-hmm. techs, um, anyone in the alternative or mainstream healthcare world around how we can really help folks heal um, you know, so many people like don't show up and continue their treatment because they've been activated in their trauma and people never know they don't come back because of that. And so it will really, in my hope and dreams, create more health across the world because they'll be collaborating with their physicians in a way that feels genuinely caring where all parts of them are welcome and understood. So that's creating safer healthcare. I think um, such a brilliant course and, you know, a lot of medical institutions in more developed countries, I've noticed this, there is a push towards moving from the expert, the doctor being the expert patient to a more patient, they call it patient-centred, which means a more collaborative approach. And it strikes me that your course offers a skill set that supports them achieving that cultural outcome definitely it really does it's really about the relationship more than anything and so it is a revolution and we're so aware that the way medical systems have been built it's not about the relationship it's about getting people in fast as fast as possible so I come in waving my let's go slow flag so we built the course knowing that and offering tools um that are also possible to use in just the course of a few seconds or a few minutes. It's more around the awareness of how we regulate our own nervous systems as care providers. Mm. When is that starting, Shelby? The creating September 20th. Okay, Okay. beautiful. Mm -hmm. So if people want to find you, your website is shelby-lee.com, right? Yep, or creatingsaferspace.com or creatingsaferhealthcare.com. Beautiful. And um, but you have Facebook, no, you have Facebook groups for the courses, yeah. Is that right? I do, yeah. yeah. And then your uh, Instagram, your work Instagram, what's the handle on that one? Fierceheart.shelbylee, L-E-I-G-H. Beautiful. So I'll put that in the notes. Thank you so much for speaking Mm. today. It's been such a lovely chat and very illuminating and lots of things to think about. Thank you also. It's so beautiful to be invited into this conversation particularly. And I really feel like I learned a lot that I didn't know. So keep doing your beautiful work. Thank you.